Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Tilly is back to chat with us about kink, edge play, and what things are like when we first discover them. How did we first get interested in queerness and kink? What, what's our experience been with gender dysphoria and self-acceptance growing up? And how has power exchange changed us as we've gotten older? And how has it changed for us as we've gotten older? Let's go to the session and hear Tilly's perspective. In your bed with your heating pad. That sucks. But I mean, it's probably the best place for it to suck. Yeah, it's it's very like, I think, like classic chronic pain um, work situation where you're just like, I'm going to get comfy, get my comfort item. Good. Yep. Yeah. I completely understand. It's, yeah, home turns into a bit of a nest, I think, at a certain point, and you just become so comfortable just being like with all the things you need for support. And more importantly, for me anyway, with the emotional confidence that I'm like near a bathroom and I have everything I need so that I'm not like worried about like, how am I going to get the things I need? Oh, yeah. And like, and I think. I've been going through some pretty extreme stuff around food. And so I'm like, oh, my like five safe foods are like in the kitchen. They're available. I don't have to worry about like navigating anything around that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I should welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. My guest today is going to be Tilly King. Is Tilly King. And we are... (laughs) talking with them about various different things. Um, how do you feel about talking a little bit about um, edge play? Do you do a lot of edge play, Tilly? I haven't. Well, de- so here's... Depends how you define I, edge play. Uh, yeah, I'm like, can we define edge play? Because... It, That's fair. My experience of edge play has changed a lot in the years. I have definitely done what a lot of people consider edge play. You know, like more dangerous activities, things with higher risk of potential harm, or if there's consequences, the consequences are more extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, play where I, like, I have some permanent alterations that have happened to my body during play. Um, play that is, like, potentially more psychologically and emotionally loaded. Like, I've done all of that. Um, and what's really interesting is now I'm at this point where... I'm doing 
what is probably a lot of the play I engage in is considered physically less rigorous and less risky but I'm really more interested in exploring a lot of like emotional or intimate edges. Right. Yeah. I think that counts as edge play. Yeah. Um, it certainly, it certainly is under the greater umbrella. I think, I think most people would probably still consider it edge play, even though I hear what you're saying about the definitions fluid and it can mean different things to different people. Oh yeah. Like my definition of edge play could be someone's like regular Saturday night play. Um, my, you know, comfortable, warm, fuzzy, I'm just going to stare into somebody else's eyes for two hours play. Like, even just yeah. that, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that feels intense and hard, right? Like, you know. I think I think you knocked it out of the park with, like, a really good definition that was flexible and suited to the person. Like, is it an increased risk of all these things? Is it an increased risk of psychological consequences? And for someone who's really avoidant in their attachment or for someone who, for whom intimacy is very hard or frightening, staring into someone's eyes for two hours would definitely be edge play for them, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, I think for some of us who maybe have become acclimatized to edge play or like craving mm-hmm. intense edge play, like really being present and appreciative of less intensity mm-hmm. and investing in like less intensity and exploring that can also be a bit of an edge. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what edges do you play on? What kinds of edge play would you say is like your Saturday night play? And, and, Let's make a distinction, too, between edge play that is, like, generally speaking edge play and edge play that is, like, special event edge play. You know, there's, like, the, like, once in a quarter you do, like, a cathartic scene or something versus you really enjoy, say, knife play around your face. Like, you know, those types of differences. Right. Um, I don't actually, I'm not playing on the super regular these days. Um, But one thing I find that's super edgy is I'm actually doing long distance DS. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And it's really funny because I was at um at West Coast Bound which happened recently and I was in the Rooks talking about I forget which of their very excellent and very theory um kind of power exchange classes they they gave but they talked about the de-escalator, the relationship de-escalator where you know in DS where you kind of start out doing power exchange and scene and then then you do it out scene <laughs> and, and you know increase it to you know to the fact that someone's controlling your life and i realized that with this long distance ds situation i'm currently in we we kind of started on the top level where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know like i can do like i play with whoever i want I have sex with whoever I want and I do that however I want. But when I'm like, Hey, am I available to take on another commitment in my life? I'm accountable to talk to this person and like deeply consider their opinion. Mm -hmm. And occasionally like I have basically asked this person to like micromanage me and make Mm -hmm. decisions for me about whether or not I can, you know, like hang out with a friend on a Tuesday night and things like that. I'm curious what the intention is behind that micromanagement. Is that to like help manage potential chronic pain consequences? 
Um, it's more about like short short answer yes is it's definitely the intention is to give over that authority so that someone is helping me manage my chronic pain situation um but also bigger picture this person and i have been working um over the last year around managing my compulsion to be busy oh i I hear you yeah so this is why it's like super edgy it it is basically trying to dismantle a lot of my coping mechanisms around chronic illness and capitalism and um kind of my the things i do to emotionally regulate and so that's why it can like you know i ask this person to like tell me no about certain things and then they do and then i just get really angry at them for half an hour mm. and then i end up being incredibly grateful because i know that this is supporting my health and my development and my healing mm-hmm. and it's hard for me to do it by myself Totally. Um, just for folks who are maybe less familiar with chronic pain, do you want to sort of talk for like 30 seconds about like how giving over that authority um, helps maybe with emotional labor or like just uh, explain a little bit more why it would be very desirable to have someone just be like, tell go to bed. Right. Um, well, for me, I have I've lived with chronic pain since for like 22 years, at least. Mm. And so I've been in a lot of situations where I've needed, like, I've wanted rest or recuperation, but it hasn't been available to me because, you know, I need to keep working or I need to keep functioning. And so my reflex is not to rest and give my body ease. So to have someone else from a more objective standpoint to be like, of course you need rest and ease. In fact, that's the only thing you're allowed to do right now is very helpful. Mm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I'm just sort of thinking about that. I tend <laughs> to be on the parent side of the glucose guardian kind of dynamic that like um, steward and caregiver kind of relationship that happens a lot in DS, I tend to be like the steward that's like, are you pursuing group counseling? Are you pursuing regular counseling? Are you pursuing meds? Like how, how are you actioning all these things in your life? And in, in what ways is making a phone call so difficult to do that if I literally just like bug you about it, like once every week, it'll happen months sooner, like, like little things that can make huge impacts. Um, so I guess I just kind of wanted to (laughs) <laughs> really, I just wanted to talk, Tilly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so edge play. So long distance DS, that that does sound edgy in that there is so much less ability to do aftercare, to do like the touchy kind of aftercare. Because like for me, I have so many needs for touch that like aftercare looks like cuddling. Aftercare looks like like rubbing on my arms or kissing on my face and just letting me know that like, it's all going to be okay. And we're still just two humans that are fallible 
and trying to do our very best with each other to leave each other better than we found each other. Yeah. Like, but that for me is a very touch-based thing. So like long distance, it sounds really edgy to me. Um, Oh yeah. It's it's very edgy because like about 12 years ago, I was in a long distance relationship that was very like very intense emotionally. And after we broke up, I was like, "Mm, I'm not doing that again, Mm. (laughs) which you, you know, when you, whenever you make a decision like that, I think the universe like issues a challenge. And so for a lot of the time, for a long time, I said, I don't, I don't do long distance relationships. And then I formed all these like important, intimate, long-term bonds, friendship bonds with people living a long way away. Well, people living a long way away. And, um, one of them involved into this like stewardship relationship recently and so i mean what's nice and what gives me the security to enable me to do this is the fact that we have been long distance friends for 10 years and so most of our relationship is done through texting or messaging or some something like that and so i'm i'm used to you know like ebbs and flows and lulls and and still there being a lot of like love and positive regard between the two of us um yeah but at the same time you know when i go through these cycles of you know being angry or feeling challenged or sometimes just you know needing reassurance or something I can't get it in the way I would get it in a local relationship. I we mm-hmm. have to work through these text-based mediums or occasionally do a phone call or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so that can be a bit challenging. Also, I'm, I have a high, I have what I consider a high degree of autonomy mm-hmm. relationship. And so occasionally I find myself wanting to feel um what i call the leash right like you want to feel the connection through a little bit more control and a little bit more attention from this person and so occasionally kind of figuring out how to have those feelings and how to feel safe in those feelings. And at the same time, navigating that, like this person has like a whole big, beautiful, full complex life. I have a whole big, beautiful complex life. And yes, we are a part of each other's lives, but you know, there will be days when neither of us can be very available to each other. Right. When did you first start thinking about attention and control? When did that first start? sort of enter into you know young young Tilly's brains about connection um I was a probably a teenager Mm -hmm. um when I realized I was interested in kink like part of my burgeoning sexuality and um yeah I had a lot of fantasies about giving up control or having control taken from me in various ways and it took me a while probably into actually doing 
power-based relationships for a while to realize that part of control is attention. Mm-hmm. They're practically the same thing for me sometimes. Attention and control. Yeah. Because someone can't exert control over you without paying attention to you. Exactly. Or they can try and it's not going to work very well for either one of us. Because <laughs> I, right. I, think, I think part of the learning curve was having experiences of somebody trying to have control over me without having adequate attention paid. And then, and then you're just like, oh, I just don't listen and don't do the thing because they aren't checking. Yeah. Or or I've been doing the thing perfectly. and Right. And they haven't noticed. That's worse. That's yeah. worse. Yeah. And I can't remember any specific examples, but it was probably throughout my 20s. Mm-hmm. It was kind of solidified for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I first started thinking about kink and power exchange when I was probably like, oh, geez, 11, 12. Mm. It was probably in and around there that I started first having fantasies of being, yeah, I I wouldn't say tortured and I wouldn't say forced to have sex, but I wouldn't not say those things. (laughs) It's like there's an element of both of those things. Um, in those fantasies from a very, very young age of of developing sexuality. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I can I can remember things, yeah, as early as like, I, I would say 11. Right. I would say 11 is probably when I first started having more, more sexual ideation. And that was when it started picking up for me. Yeah. For me, I remember writing erotica with my best friend when I was 14, which, you know, that's a total normal thing for best friends to do, right? Um, So I did the exact same thing, but sorry, carry on. Yeah. And so one of the reasons we stopped writing erotica together um, was that she had a hard time with the level of, like, I think I'm going to use the word violence, like the level of violence, the level of control, the level of like hurt, comfort stuff that was in mine. And this is like, we weren't involved in fanfic online. Like we were kind of online, but we were like 14 using and this, using <laughs> which. Yeah. So we didn't, I didn't have like the language around right. that. It's also in a time period probably where like a lot of the fanfic world was fairly new. It wasn't like, um, at least online. Mm. At least online. Yeah. I remember, I think in my, um, so my family's a Star Trek family. Okay. Very important to know. And I remember when I was in my early teens at one point, my mother actually found like a newspaper article about slash fiction <laughs> and like so this is the mid 90s for for text for context for people and like mm-hmm. giving it to me and i think that was one of her ways of communicating that i know you're queer geeky, <laughs> <laughs> and it's all okay <laughs> awesome yeah interesting yeah um i think there was a little bit of homophobia in my parenting actually like in my family it Mm. it definitely didn't feel like um an acceptable like it it never felt acceptable for me to be gay growing up and i don't know that i'm like like again it's one of those like i'm not like flaming gay exclusive gay but 
I am a little flaming and I am a little gay. (laughs) It's like just in that general sort of queer umbrella. But yeah, the environment never felt conducive or supportive or open to that. Like I very much got the idea that, uh, I don't even know how to explain it, but my, my brother was very concerned when I was, um, when my mother and sister were dressing me up in a dress, um, that it would be something that I would like regret the rest of my life. Like, think about that. Even if I were straight, regret the rest of my life. Think about that. For like Like one little little incident. Well, well, even an incident. Like, so you dressed up in clothing that didn't resonate for you. Queers do that every day (laughs) in some places. I so, I occasionally still do that. I'll I'll put on a garment and I'll be like, oh, I'm not feeling this, you know. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think it's something in adolescence that should be encouraged is like experiment with fashion, wide varieties of fashion. Some of which, like, I think we all have pictures, even of like gender normative, appropriative or sorry, appropriate outfits that were like, yeah. oh yes, deeply regret. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think about what mine would be. And I, I can't think of anything too specific, but I definitely had dysphoric experiences as young as grade two. How old are you in grade two? Grade one? Well, grade a, one. Six, seven. Yeah. Yeah, I was a September baby as well, but I'm assuming I would have been seven for that. Um, But like, yeah, experiences of just feeling fairly dysphoric, um, having like self-image of myself in makeup and being like, oh, that's strange. Or like, oh, that's that's not Mm -hmm. how I should be. Or like people would laugh at me or people wouldn't accept me. Um, And now I wear lipstick and nail polish when I want to. And it's like not a thing. It's like very rarely a thing anyways. Yeah, I remember... Like, I was allowed to do a fair amount of experimentation with my aesthetic. Um, I was I was raised by, like, closeted bisexual ex-hippies. <laughs> That's so awesome. Was, yeah, so it was great. So when I was 11 years old and I cut my, like, butt-length hair to basically look like Tasha Yar. Um, oh, yeah. Entirely intentionally. Like, she... she that was why I wanted very short hair was Tasha Yar. Um, it all goes back to Star Trek, basically. And <laughs> and my mom was just like, I think there was a little bit of talk about if I cut that much of my hair off, how long it would take to grow out if I regretted it, which I think is appropriate for, you know, talking to your 11-year-old about a drastic appearance change. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, she allowed me to do it. I still have these pictures that she took of me um, right after my haircut because I was so proud of my, like, early 90s baby dyke haircut. (laughs) (laughs) That is really cute. Yeah. Um, I never got to do any fancy haircuts. I never got to do any colors. I never did any colors. Um, Now I don't really have hair. Like, my hair is extremely short and I'm balding and I'm like... I've always just really envied colored hair and I've never been able to have dyed hair. It wasn't acceptable growing up in my household. Oh. Um, like I, I, my sister put in highlights and that was acceptable because it was like femme. I don't know if she ever wanted to go like crazy wacky colors. I'm not sure she did, but uh, I certainly, it was never an option. I never, I never specifically like insisted on it though. And I feel like if during my teenage years I had insisted more, it might've been a thing, but I had so much anxiety and there was so much bullying around 
even when I was like normative in my appearance, I would be a little bit queerer in my behaviors, by which I mean I would be sensitive or effeminate and it would be perceived as like weakness or gayness. Like I got called a fag all of the time growing up. Like that was just like constantly every day. Right. So yeah, I just, there are just things that I just never did growing up that I, I look back and I'm like, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. And I can wear lipstick now and rock a beard and feel really good about that combo. Cause it feels very gender fucky, which like feels very authentically me. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you, yeah. You look great when you're doing those things. So oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back for me as growing up as a little queerling is that like my parents kind of gave permission for expression mm-hmm. but and we had like we had so many lesbian babysitters because that was also just how my mother grew up was like lesbians are the people who like babysit your kids because they're not busy with their own kids <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny yeah so that's that's how she raised us and but there was no explicit pro-queer messaging. Got and it. So I picked up a lot of internalized homophobia from, like, culture and from things like... I remember being in kindergarten and talking about how I was going to grow up and marry a girl. Because um, mm-hmm. I just like girls better than boys, right? Like boys Sure. Are- yeah. Um, and having arguments with my classmates about how, you know, like, our neighbors were girls and they were married... Which, mm-hmm. legally, obviously, no, but, you know, they lived in a house together and they were always referred to as a couple. So, in my mind, that that was, was a marriage. Story. Yeah, and they, like, they probably considered themselves married. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being told that wasn't possible and that wasn't a thing that people did. Um, and then just, like, the subtle homophobia that's everywhere. And Mm -hmm. so it took me a while to realize that I had permission to be queer. Like that Mm. A, been an option, and then B, once I realized that that applied to me, that it was okay and chill. And my parents were so, like when I came out to them, I came out when I was about 14, my parents were like so low-key about, oh, okay, we have a queer kid. Not really surprised. This is cool. Um... That's awesome. Yeah, it was kind of awesome. But at the same time, like, I think I could have stood with some, like, you know, how people, like, nowadays do, like, little coming out cakes and cute things like that. I, I could have probably stood with a bit of that to, like, really mm-hmm. have it affirmed that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think the fanfare that a lot more baby queers are getting and that's becoming more normalized and more acceptable, like as queerness becomes more acceptable, I think that fanfare would have been really fun. Yeah. It would have been nice to experience more rainbow cakes and shit. Yeah. Also, why not? More cake. <laughs> more cake. <laughs> so how has your relationship to queerness changed as you've gotten older? Oh, I think... I've become, like, so stubbornly attached to being queer. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Like, I just, I just, I love it. Um, I think about all aspects of queerness. I think about the fundamental rejection of the binary. That's actually 
something I'm kind of setting forward as my intention for this decade is like the like whenever possible to reject binaries. Mm, definitely. You know, um, I'd try and make that like my daily <laughs> wherever possible reject binaries. Yes, exactly. There's actually, I have the, I screen ca capped the Twitter that literally says reject, reject the seduction of binaries. And I think I'm going to like embroider myself as a little sampler to have in my house. Um, and, you know, like there's a lot of the days where like, because my queerness has become so entrenched in my day-to-day -day life. Like I have a long-term partnership with another queer individual who happens to be like a trans woman. We are in a non-monogamous relationship. We have separate bedrooms. We're considering a commitment ceremony, but we're not going to like get legally married because we don't think the state has any, like, why should the government have any say in our relationship at all? Um, mm -hmm. And the way we kind of move through the world and do relationships with, like, our good friends and, you know, people around us. And it's just the more... The more queer I do my life, the more I love it. And the fact that, you know, right now my coworkers, a lot of my coworkers are straight. And there's one who, like, used to be a lesbian. And there's kind of these weird, subtle acknowledgments that everyone knows I'm in an open relationship. But at the same time, I'm in this long-term relationship, which is, like, so held up as a value of, like, you know the the ultimate attainable goal is to be in a long-term relationship for a lot of people in my work and i'm just like sure i mean it's nice and it works i really like what i have i'm definitely not going to disrupt it intentionally but it also like doesn't make me any more like valid necessarily yeah and it doesn't make your relationship any more valid either no and i think one of the things that um, I haven't found a way to dialogue this with my coworkers, but one of the things that has enabled my relationship to be long term is the fact that there's been periods where we've had very separate lives and we've both been working individually on really important personal projects like me. It was my mental health and recovering my mental health with. Um, my partner, it was, and I'm allowed to disclose this level of stuff, it was for sobriety and becoming sober and really, you know, becoming established in her sobriety. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have a lot to do with a lot of conventional views of marriage, but I don't think our relationship would have worked if we were trying to be individually enmeshed to a degree during that period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? How do you feel about your queerness? It's definitely changed a lot as I've gotten older. Like I feel like when I was younger, there was a lot less freedom to explore my queerness. So I didn't really like 
Ah, oh, it's so interesting. It's like when I was really young, like pre-teenager, I definitely had experiences with other boys. Um, one of my friends once was talking about how sickeningly overscented his mother's perfume was that even if you sprayed it on a butthole, you would only smell the perfume. And I was like, I don't believe you. So we had to try the experiment. <laughs> um, and there were like other experiences too, where I like played strip cards with people and we got naked. Um, there's like a couple of experiences, some more positive, some less positive, but ultimately it was like, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I had experiences with boys before I was like told it was really wrong. Mm. And then as I was told it was really wrong in high school, I just like didn't have any experiences with boys. There was so much active anti-homosexual bullying that it was just like, or yeah, there was no safety to be queer. It felt like there was no space to be queer. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't like there was like the openly super flamboyant one queer kid kind of deal when I was growing up mm. it wasn't like you had a community where you could find someone that you actually clicked with and it's like just because two people are oriented towards each other doesn't mean they're going to want to have anything to do with each other and sometimes I just found like other queer folks not to my specific liking mm. so it was just like a question of finding people that I found attractive. And interestingly, when I did find boys attractive, of course they weren't, they weren't queer or didn't openly seem to be willing to talk about that. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I certainly didn't have the courage to bring it up. Not at that time. And even now I find as I'm like coming into my queerness more, it's a lot to work through that baggage and talk to someone that not only do you have the, you know, hopefully mostly resolved internal stigma, but like, what if they still have it? And there's just so many considerations and it's overwhelming. I think for me at times to sort of come to terms with a lot of the like really misogyny based homophobia, like not just regular homophobia, but there's so much of the, like, I don't want to say revulsion of the feminine, but like, they're just, there is like a lot of, you know, don't, don't behave like women because they're not, they're not people like men are. And if you behave like a woman, you're, you know, like degrading yourself in some way. And it's like, what the fuck is wrong with our society? Oh God. Yes. Like that's one of the reasons why, um, sometimes I don't hang around with queer guys is because if they are really gay identified, Mm. there's often a flavor of misogyny going on and I just, I have no patience. Yep. Nor should you need to like, that's totally garbage. Yeah. And which is funny because I, I have identified that I have a bit of misandry in my character. Um, <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Or at least um, it might not be misandry so much as like, extreme distaste for toxic masculinity oh that's fair yeah and so but because toxic masculinity is part of our culture it can be right. really hard to separate individual men from toxic masculinity in general um, right and it can be really difficult when someone's worked through a lot of their toxic masculinity they may still have behaviors yeah. i feel like a lot of us do 
or they have like some subtle internalized yep stuff like i'm thinking of someone in my life who is like one of the men i have chosen to be close to and this person has some internalized ableism and mm. capitalism has been really hard on this person and sometimes when I am interacting with them, it feels like they're enacting toxic masculinity. But because mm. masculinity is, of course, related to ableism and it's related to capitalism, like right. interconnecting systems of oppression, you know, it, it can be a bit hard for me to, like, step back and, like, have compassion for this person's struggles around certain stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I, I wish I could be more specific, but I'm really trying to, like, preserve this person's confidence. No, I get it. Yeah. I get it. And, yeah, it's it's partly how that... So, for folks who are less familiar with toxic masculinity, do you want to sort of um, give more of a definition of, like, what it specifically is? Uh, or how you understand it? I don't have a thumbnail, but how I think of it is I think of toxic masculinity is kind of the elevation of certain ideals of masculinity that are so extreme that it becomes destructive not only to people around these men, but mm. themselves. Yeah, I often think about <clears throat> I often think about toxicity as something that's just inherently destructive in general. When we say like a toxic relationship or people who are who are toxic people, I often think like, okay, who are they toxic for? Because to toxicity for me is is such a subjective concept. Mm -hmm. It's it's a question of like, is this a destructive force? At least that's the question I ask. Yeah. So with toxic masculinity, um, it's it's exactly how you described it just sort of like with suicide rates of men being what they are, um, what's prompting all of this suicide, right? Like where is, where is all of this damage happening to these men? And I think the answer is in their gendered conditioning that separates them from non-men. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, a lot of men won't necessarily seek things like medical aid, whether it's mental medical aid or like physical mental Medical. Which is gendered, right? Like yeah. that's that's a gendered piece of programming around harm and around needing help, asking for help, and that being fundamentally unmanually. I mean, there used to be joke after joke after joke on sitcoms about men who wouldn't even ask for directions. I mean, if you're not willing to ask for directions, it's pretty hard to ask for mental help. Yeah. So that's something boys get programmed with at a very young age, and it leads them you know, for the portion of boys that do need support working through depression or anxiety to just not have it. And then, of course, what do people that have really extreme or late stage mental illness look like? They look like they're harmful to themselves and often harmful to other people as well, not able to form functional relationships. And of course, this is a very broad generalization. I don't mean to be ableist about it because I recognize there are some elements of that. Um, but for the sake of brevity in summarizing the things that kill men which is a lot of things mm -hmm. um i just wanted to sort of touch more on the depression and suicide aspect where folks that that do become depressed or, or suicidal because of the one two of like 
life circumstance and reasons people become depressed and suicidal for anyone. And then the two being, oh, and also you're not allowed to ask for help or you're not, you're a failure as a man. Like that, that one, two, like, oof, makes it very hard. Yeah. So when we talk about toxic masculinity, um, exactly what you said, um, I just decided to like repeat what you were saying from a place of more masculinity. <laughs> well, I, I think also you, you know, like I have definitely had a lot of experience with toxic masculinity, like since sure. growing up. But there's a certain, like, as an outsider, really. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, like the ways I, that, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I when I, sometimes when I think about toxic men, like, my father was not necessarily physically violent, but mm. a lot of traits that were tied into toxic masculinity, including shutting himself off from like affection and closeness and mm. all yep humans yeah we need connection and closeness we need to be able to be seen be heard be felt like to be witnessed and to be part of a community and to have connection with other humans like it's so important for us as to have some form of that it doesn't always look the same it may not be cuddling it may not be this or that but there's the connection with other humans is so critical i think Exactly. And like, he, I don't think my father knew how to be vulnerable mm. in a safe or sustainable way. And like, when I think about it, mm -hmm. my father passed away about 15 years ago. And when I think about it, it like, it, it still hurts my heart to think about now, now not just thinking about what our relationship was like, but now just thinking about how it must have hurt him to live like that for 58 years. You know. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's that's a lot to take on to try and imagine the experience of for lack of a better term, what some people call being emotionally constipated. Like that feeling that you have all these really powerful explosive feelings inside and they just can't get out of your body. Like you can't voice them to people, you can't communicate them through even like hugs or physical affection. You're just cut off from your feelings and from the humans around you as a result super toxic yeah yeah and and of course you know like obviously it affected him and his mental health but it also affected like our entire family system i have reports from it having affected his family growing up like his siblings i you know and it has I feel like it's definitely been part of like some of the intergenerational wounding and healing mm -hmm. that has been part of my family dynamic and and in some ways my fa like my father went to art school my father encouraged right. our creative talents as children um, right he was not like a super stereotypical manly man. And he still had all this damage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, it's not just your dad, like the number of, even if we just talk dads, like in that generation, the, the quality of life that men had based on their access to emotions and to meaningful relationship building that was beyond superficial 
Ooh, that's a whole, that's a whole generation. Right. And I mean, that's part of intergenerational trauma. I mean, if all of you, if, if everyone's dad, you know, participated in world in a world war and to some extent was adjacent to or directly experiencing trauma, that's, that changes the way that you engage with other humans. And among so many men at once, it changes the way men engage with other men. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still don't feel like I make um, great connections with other men. It's something that's actively gotten in the way of my queerness, and it's something I'm still exploring and trying to heal. But, uh, you know, my father didn't participate in World War II, but his dad certainly did. And yeah. his his stunting as a son um, emotionally and with the way that he engaged with with me, yeah, better, but still. Yeah. Yeah, like I... Now I'm I'm wondering, like, that's an interesting thought experiment for, I don't know, some speculative fiction writers is what would have the 20th century looked like if generations of men hadn't been involved in war. Right. Um, and it's it's not just World War Two either. This culture of um, cutting ourselves off from our emotions can be rooted in militarism. And when you think about Vietnam and you think about people who had older brothers or fathers that went to Vietnam, um, I'm talking in a very American context, of course, but um, in, in Canada, there was obviously different, different conflicts and different experiences. And you can't talk about the experiences of just one country as representing um, like Western European and descended societies mm -hmm. masculinity. But a lot of our masculinity is shaped by this idea of having a populace with a standing army um, and that standing army being willing to to kill on command i think yeah yeah and i think that definitely shaped a lot of the rhetoric of genders in mm. in the 20th century and i i think about this idea that you know women were supposed to be endlessly capable and nurturing and caring of like, you know, first of all, you know, your partner goes away for years mm -hmm. and is in incredible danger and you you have very little knowledge or access of this. And then they come back. Right. And chances are they have PTSD. Because I'm kind of assuming that if you go to war, you end up with PTSD automatically. I mean, probably. I would say that to some degree, I think people would have had it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a fair assumption. That yeah, I think so too. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, I think there's a lot of healing men were trying to do on their own with veterans halls and, uh, you know, uh, various ways that they would have sort of restored their relationships with other men and talked about being in traumatic experience and sort of done their own sorts of therapy around it. Mm -hmm. Men have a way of supporting one another when they've gone through, um, similar trauma it's actually really beautiful but i don't think it gets talked about a lot no i've actually never really heard that held up um like if for example you think about the way war vets talk to each other about wars and how they're typically and in, in, from what little i've seen of it incredibly supportive of one another mm. or if you look at organizations like the men's trauma center in victoria like there are examples of men trying to help men with the knowledge and experience they have um, there's also 
various men's groups that are varying levels of awesome and or problematic, depending. Um, there's like, I, I don't have tons of experience knowing which is which, but uh, I know that there's a group called Manology. And like, so there, there are a lot of men's groups that typically do focus on helping other men that have experienced a lot of shit around gender. Mm-hmm. But to what extent is that through a lens of masculinity that has yet to be reimagined? To what extent is that through a lens of masculinity that views femininity as something fundamentally alien that could never understand masculinity? And I mean, yes, it's fair to say that people who are socialized as girls or boys will not necessarily in any way understand that socialization that they did not receive except as an outsider. Sure. Um, but that doesn't mean that the people that have received that, that experience are completely incomprehensible or alien either. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like people, people are able to form cross gender relationships all the time, all the time, all the time. And while I do like my experiences, there's only so much you can ever truly understand or have empathy with another individual. I think mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. always a little, you know, everyone is different and, and that's just part of being human and part of the kind of mystery of relationships. But I mean, obviously people make it work. Yeah, I think so. I yeah. mean, as evidenced by relationships that have yet to fall apart or will never fall apart <laughs> that are, that are cross gender. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've kind of talked a lot of this stuff to death. I think that's probably pretty good. I mean, we didn't really talk about edge play as much as I thought we were going to. We ended up talking more about like gender dysphoria and like accepting queerness and like early queer experiences, misogyny, masculinity, femininity, cool stuff to talk about. I enjoy it anyway. We can talk about edge play another time. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Well, thank you so much for being on the session of Intimate Interactions, Tilly. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a good time, and I'm glad we do this. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard, or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.